From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Bovin family returned to their block for the first time since the Marshall Fire. You can see the leftover bump that was our other car sitting there on the top of that, where the garage used to be. While they want to rebuild, they're feeling overwhelmed by the road ahead. For perspective on that road, I'll speak with a Boulder woman who's lost her home twice to fire. Then, when it comes to pandemics in Colorado, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We had the same struggle then that we had now in 1918 about the mask or not the mask. What you still had was public health officials taking on politicians during election year, as well as businesses who are crashing and the public asserting personal liberty interests. Thank you to everyone who gives to support the work Colorado Public Radio does every day. Thanks to those who support by donating a vehicle, by underwriting, or by making CPR a part of their estate plans. And thanks to those who volunteer, who share feedback, and who make CPR an important part of their everyday. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. After the loss is the going home, or what's left of home. Thousands of people in Boulder County are experiencing that this week after the Marshall Fire. Today, we have two stories of returning to the rubble. In a few minutes, you'll hear from someone who's actually had to do it twice. She lost her home to fire as a kid, then as an adult. Briefly first, though, an update on the Bovin family. We shared their story Monday as they moved into an apartment at a church. So we're uh, coming into Louisville now. Shortly after getting the keys to their temporary place, we followed as Larry and Mary Bovin returned to their block in Louisville for the first time. They couldn't get right up to where the house once stood, but they got close enough to see the concrete foundation. This is our house and what's left of it, right? You can see the, the bench down there and the old chimney. One evergreen tree appeared to still be alive. You can see the leftover bump that was our other, other car sitting there on the top of that uh, in, where the garage used to be. Standing there, Mary said she was angry the fire happened. They tried to see beyond that, but couldn't believe their own eyes, even staring right at it. We have to appreciate the fact that we're alive. But I look at that and I look at what's left and there's not much left of what we had or what we, I mean, the top two, I mean, they're not there. And the basement, everything inside the walls is gone. And I'm I'm just shocked, shocked it, that it happened so quick. And we've got nothing, pretty much nothing left to to show for it. I mean, it's a, a total loss. They'd spent almost 30 years in this home. This represents our a lifetime yeah. of things that our family cherished, 
we've got memories in that house of, you know, all the, the things that we did with the kids and our Christmas, you know, all the holidays and everything that we... And I had told you I had a letter from Robert Kennedy. I mean, we used to... Yeah, the, our, our, yeah, Mary had those letters, uh, original letters with original signatures from Edward Kennedy. And, and John Kennedy. John Kennedy. Up on the wall. Bob Hope. Yep. Letters that won't ever be able to be recovered. Larry says he used to think that where he lived was pretty safe. And while he leans towards rebuilding, he's not quite sure where to start. Let's get some perspective on the long road to rebuilding a home and a life from Andy O'Connor of Boulder. She's a public speaking coach and writer, and she has lost her home twice to fire. First, when she was a kid. Then again in 2010 in the Four Mile Canyon fire, it destroyed 169 homes outside Boulder and was at the time the most expensive in state history. As she picked up the pieces, O'Connor started a blog called Burning Down the House, a testament to her sense of humor. Andy, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ryan. It's terrible to be here and good to be here. I'm glad I can be on today. Thanks. There's a section of your blog called How to Help Disaster Survivors. And Mm -hmm. in it, you write about your own disaster brain after the the fire. What is disaster brain? Oh, thanks for asking. You can, you know, just listening to the folks before me, you can really hear that. You can hear the sense of shock and the sense of overwhelm. And it's, it's so tricky. You know, there's so many coping mechanisms to deal with that shock. You can focus on some things really well and other things, it's just a blur. It's really hard to make decisions. You're really overwhelmed. Uh, It's a very, very tough time. Some people say, oh, I'm fine. I'm great. I'm going to build back better. And they're, they're really in shock. You know, the stuff is going to hit them later. I could really hear the shock and the sadness and the grief in, in the voices of the people just speaking. Um, yeah. So your brain is all over the place, just like any great loss. Mm. You know, someone dies, uh, you lose a job, a home, your brain just kind of shuts down in a lot of areas. So it's a time to be really gentle with people. Because of disaster brain, you caution folks around those who have lost their homes. Uh, when it comes to asking the question, what do you need? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Talk about you that. need everything. <laughs> you know, you need everything. It's so instead of saying, you know, what do you need? Just offer really simple things. I always tell people we're talking about basic needs, food, clothing, shelter, right? It's winter in Colorado. It's really cold. It was September when my house burned down in 2010. And also when I was a kid. So clothing is really important. I still have some nice winter coats people gave me right after the fire. So clothing is important. Food in terms of gift cards, you know, gift cards for food, groceries, um, very basic things like that. Uh, You know, instead of saying, what do you need? Just give people gift cards. Target was really good for me. (laughs) I 
I don't own stock in Target, but it was really good because they have everything from clothing to cosmetics to food. So just helping people with basics and specific offers like, can I watch the kids? Can I walk the dog? Can I help you try to find a place? You know, there's thousands of people right now looking for housing. So if you're close to somebody, maybe you can make some calls for them. My friends got together. I was out of town when my house burned down mm. in 2010. And three of my girlfriends got together and, and found a house to rent for me while I was driving from Washington State back to Colorado. By the time I got back three days later, they had found me a little cottage to rent for me and my dog. I couldn't have done that. You know, I was, I was too disaster brained. I was too discombobulated. Yeah. So, you know, food, clothing, shelter, instead of like, what do you need? Cause the answer is everything, right? Everything. You've just lost everything. It's so hard to understand. I'd like to play a snippet from a, pe- a press conference. This is the day after the Marshall fire and uh, Senator Michael Bennett spoke. Boulder County um, and the communities that have been affected have been through this. This may have, this fire may have happened on the plains of, of Colorado, which is very unusual. Uh, but this county we know is mountain strong, and we know we're going to be able to rebuild better than we were before. Fires on the plains uh, aren't actually all that unusual, but it's it's the phrase "mountain strong." I want to yeah. zo- zoom in on. I mean, at the time that he spoke, people weren't sure whether their homes were still standing. They'd just gone through a traumatic evacuation. I can't imagine how strong I would feel at that point. How did those sorts of messages land for you after you'd lost your home to fire? It's Ryan, it's really a paradox, you know, because you know deep down that you are going to get through it, that you are strong, you're not going to collapse in a puddle. And you are kind of collapsed in a puddle at the same time. You know, you really need a lot of help from people. And there's a lot of pressure to, to be fine, you know, to be okay, to be strong. I've lived in the mountains most of my life. And I definitely at first had that mountain strong thing going. People would say, do you need anything? I'd be like, oh, no, it's good. I've got insurance. Then after a couple of weeks, it really hits you. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm a wreck. I'm a mess. I need all the help I can get. So the short term and the long term, you know, we tend to be optimistic. We tend to be strong people, but it's a time when we need to recognize that we don't have to be strong. I literally just fell into the arms of my friends and my community. I couldn't take care of myself. I needed a lot of help. So, you know, I tell people, if you want to support people, focus on the short term for now. Mm -hmm. Just, I'm so sorry. How can I help? Don't encourage them to be strong. Don't tell them it's going to be okay. That can all come later. Right now, just be there, you know, in a nice, quiet, supportive way and offer food, clothing, shelter, walk the dog, take care of the kids. Keep it really simple short-term rather than long-term because long-term it's like, oh, really? Am I going to be okay? You don't know. You've just lost everything. You don't know if you're going to come back from this. So, you know, it's that paradox. Like we want to hold on to the long-term, but right now to support people, keep it short-term, keep it simple. We love you. We're here and offer specific ways to help. As we heard in the introduction, the Bovins are inclined to rebuild in Louisville. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You rebuilt outside Boulder after the Four Mile Canyon fire. What are some of the things to think about as families contemplate that question? Well, you know, it's a really tough time right now, Ryan, because of the pandemic, there are shortages. Uh, It's hard to get people to build. So there's a lot to think about. Um, It's really good to talk to, first of all, uh, a great support group called United Policyholders. It's a nonprofit and they advocate for people who have lost everything in disasters. You get free advice from them. They have attorneys and they will help you look at your insurance policy. Sometimes you lose money if you don't rebuild, depending on your policy. You can really take a hit if you don't rebuild. So for some people, it's a financial imperative to rebuild. Hmm. For other people, if they want to sell up, and, you know, there were people from the Four Mile Canyon fire who didn't want to live in the mountains anymore. They sold up. Um, one person bought a farm in town. Someone else bought a coffee farm in Hawaii. I was like, oh, that sounds <laughs> okay. nice, you know. Um, so, you know, there, there are different options. It's extremely challenging. When I rebuilt my house, <clears throat> I literally had never even remodeled a bathroom. I hadn't painted a wall. I didn't know anything. Uh, So it was very challenging and I got a lot of help, but it was a good decision in the long run. So for each person, you need to look at the financial impact of it and also know that, you know, this has really shattered our sense of safety. And and I think that's been brought out a lot. You think you're in town, you think you're safe. Mm-hmm. People have talked to me before. They're like, don't you want to just get a nice condo in Louisville and feel safe? Mm. And, then when, you know, people have said that to me in the past. And then when it happens in town, you really don't know how you're going to feel safe again. So for some people, rebuilding on the same spot is like, hey, I'm here I'm safe. I'm going to be here. That was how I felt. For other people, it's better financially and psychologically to to go somewhere else, to start fresh, different town or a different part of town. It's really an individual decision, but there are some financial impacts too. So be sure you understand those before you make the decision to rebuild or not. That's really important. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and Andy O'Connor joins us from Boulder. She started a blog after losing her home to fire in 2010 called Burning Down the House. Uh, That blog remains both a kind of logistical and emotional resource for folks who have also lost their homes, uh, perhaps in the Marshall Fire in Boulder County. We talked about the need immediately. I'm curious how the need changes as time goes by, like I imagine a whole community embraces you right after, but does that wane in the ensuing months when you might really still need help? And, and just to, to draw this back to your comparison earlier to a death, you know, I think when someone dies, right, there's that immediate Mm -hmm. embrace. And then six months later, you find yourself maybe feeling really isolated. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's a great point to bring up. There is, there's a bit, you know, we're, we're all subject to so much media and news and it goes so fast and it changes. And, um, you know, one of my very good friends, a couple of weeks after the fire, we were, we were spending some time together and she was like delivering some clothes and food. And she goes, she goes, okay, so we got the we got the house burned down thing. What else is new? You know, she was totally kidding. But people's attention spans can change to other things because they have their own lives. And you're absolutely right. 
people need help in the long run. You actually need more later because right now I have two friends, Ryan, who lost homes. I have not spoken with them because I know how overwhelmed they are. Hmm. They're with their kids. They're in temporary housing. I've talked to other people who are in touch with them. They're like, oh, they're hunkered down. I said, absolutely. I'm going to get in touch with them in a couple of weeks once they're settled and then a couple of weeks later. So I think the important thing is, sure, it's great to send people a card or an email, something really simple, and then hang on to that stuff that you want to give them. Hang on to, you know, if they have you have furniture you want to give them. Several people have said, oh, do I, should I give this person my television, my old television? I'm like, not now, you know, mm. not now. So yeah, later on. And then in the long, long term, Honestly, people are going to need therapy. It's a lot to deal with. We were lucky that in the Formal Canyon fire, we had several therapists who donated time for us. So I got three free sessions several months after the fire. Really needed it, you know. It's so much to deal with. Something has happened to you that you've only seen on television or on the news. And all of a sudden, you're in the picture. It's you standing there looking at the ashes and the nothing that's left of your life and putting together the fact that it happened to you and rebuilding your sense of safety, that's a long haul. That takes a long time. So be there for people emotionally in the long haul if you can. Keep checking in. Do they need help rebuilding? It's a long haul. So right now, there, you know, people get a lot of attention and help. Check in in a couple weeks, check in in a couple months. It's a, it's a long-term process. Before we go, how did your relationship to material things change, <laughs> if at all, after losing? And, and just to remind folks, you lost yeah. your home as a girl and then again yeah. in, in adulthood. What is your relationship to stuff just in the last yeah, minute that, or so? The, the, the childhood fire is the key to that, right? <laughs> You know, when you're 12, it's like the the cusp of childhood moving into young adulthood. And um, we had this big house in the suburbs of Chicago. It burned to the ground in an electrical fire. We lost everything. And I always say that, you know, our family completely changed. We weren't, none of us collected stuff after that. We collected experiences. And to this day, I don't have a lot of stuff. I get rid of stuff every year. I do a little spring clean and um, I value the things I have more than ever, more than ever. Hmm. The, the few things that I have, you know, when people say it's just stuff, stuff makes your life. It defines your life. It's your pictures. It's where you've been. It's your family. So stuff is important. It can't hold us prisoner but it is important. So I have a lot less stuff and I value what I have even more. And if I lost it all again, I could start over again. 12 years out now from the Four Mile Canyon fire, uh, just briefly, do you feel fully recovered? (laughs) What does that mean? What does that mean? I don't know. I've, you know, recover, like, what have you recovered? Have you covered it over? Have you covered it up? Have you come back? Um, I feel, I feel very at peace here. I'm glad I rebuilt. 
And I'm glad I can be of service to people going forward. I'll always have a little PTSD and a little damage from it. It was tough watching, literally watching the flames from this fire. You could see the orange from my house. But I wasn't terrified and I don't live my life in fear. So I feel in that sense I've recovered and I have a sense of optimism and it's a real sense of privilege to help other fire survivors. It's a big part of my life. Andy O'Connor of Boulder, who has lost her home twice to fire, her blog with resources for survivors and the people who love them is called Burning Down the House. She also has a TED Talk about how losing everything can set you free. We'll be right back with the disruptions of this stage in the pandemic. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The State Transportation Agency could divert money from roads to clean transportation projects like public transit and pedestrian and bike infrastructure. We're going to set a national standard on one of the key components of how to reduce greenhouse gases. But not everyone is on board. We are outside field workers and need I-25 access. We cannot use mass transit. Greener transportation or not. Read the story at CPR.org. COVID-19 cases remain at record or near record levels as the Omicron variant sweeps through Colorado. It's leading to disruptions in daily life. Well, more disruptions, that is. Here at CPR, we're going back to mostly remote, for example. David Spector of Denver tells us he showed up to a pack-and-ship store to return a holiday gift, and a sign on the door said, closed due to COVID outbreak. Peter Mitchell, also from Denver, needs to replace his furnace, but he says the installer's behind because the staff is sick. What disruptions are you seeing in your own life, whether it's at work, at home, at school, or at the store? Share your experience. You can now record a message for us through the Colorado Public Radio app. It's in the Tell CPR section. Or email your daily disruptions, Colorado Matters, at CPR.org. That's Colorado Matters at CPR.org. Now, as Omicron rages, the push is on to get more shots in arms. Vaccinations lag still among Spanish speakers in Colorado. CPR health reporter John Daly discovered finding the right people and the right places is the key to success. It's Sunday morning. At the Ascension Catholic Parish in Montbello, a church band plays. Hundreds of people pack the pews. Every single person is wearing a mask as a woman steps up to the pulpit. Julissa Soto is not here to talk religion or read scripture. She's here to talk about immunization. Soto provides a simple message. COVID-19 vaccines are safe, effective, available, and can keep you and your family safe and healthy. In the church parking lot, a state vaccination bus is parked. Volunteers prepare to give shots as Soto, an independent health equity consultant, looks on. I'm in a mission of getting my community vaccinated, and I will stop till I get the last Latino vaccinated. The mission is urgent. Nearly two years into the pandemic with a new variant spreading fast. By one gauge, 
Just 40% of Colorado Hispanics have gotten a vaccine dose. That's more than 30% lower than whites. Soto aims to change that, in part by giving shots when it works best. Most of us organize clinics 8 to 12, Monday to Friday, 9 to 2 p.m. That's a no-no. Most immigrants work two, three jobs. She says her own story connects with this hardworking community. I came here 22 years ago, undocumented and educated. I crossed the border in the trunk of a car. So I understand the needs of this community. Now I'm a U.S. citizen. I'm highly educated. I speak two languages. That comes in handy. Because Julissa Soto gets a lot of questions. Well, what was she asking you? What does she want to know? She's asking for the booster. She's saying, is it true? She was asking me, is it true that it's a third vaccine? Soto says her vaccine knowledge is trusted because she's from the community and constantly in the community addressing many fears. One of the biggest fear is that the government plan this to see who's documented or undocumented so they can find out who, you know, who will be kicked out of the country. And what do you tell them? I say no. It's no coincidence this vaccine clinic is happening here. The Catholic Church is an essential community institution. Father Adrian Hernandez says the parish is happy Soto is raising awareness. It's a beautiful blessing for us. Before this, has it been hard to get some people in the community vaccinated? Yes. To be honest, I don't know why it's been quite difficult to, to keep the vaccination just going on around the Hispanic community. There is a lot of misinformation out there. Hernandez says the parish wants to give this vulnerable population good information so they can choose for themselves. So the Catholic Church actually says that either receiving or not receiving the vaccines is not a sin. What it could be a sin, could be, could be a sin is not receive the proper information. For Father Hernandez, the issue is personal. Last year, around November, I got COVID, and it was no fun at all. So I went to the hospital and... Uh, you were hospitalized? Yes. For how long? Uh, it was for four days. Sadly, uh, COVID got me before I got my, my vaccination. Many others here have their own COVID experiences, like 33-year-old Maria Chavez. She says she'd heard stories. That it was bad for you and... You were going to turn into zombies and all that. And hesitated to get vaccinated. We didn't even believe in COVID-19. We didn't believe it in it until it happened in our family. When the big COVID wave hit a year ago, her dad, Jose, a father of four, got sick. He worked for a landscaping company, was unvaccinated, but careful, always wearing a mask. He got a positive test, but Chavez says he couldn't get into a hospital. They didn't have space for him. They were full, so they had to wait until someone passed away in order for him to get in. Chavez says her father died at home January 9th. He was 57. That's when you believe in COVID-19. After that, Maria Chavez says, her entire family got vaccinated. And she started volunteering, sharing her story at community clinics like this one. So I'm now looking at the line right after the service, and there are many, many people in a long line snaking around the outside of the church waiting to get their vaccines. One man here is Rene Brizuela. He works for a cement contractor. He came for a booster and is on board with the pro-vaccine message. Yeah, that's helped. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, because 
some people, you know, from us, we need that information. Sometimes we don't have that enough information, you know. So now we, we know. <laughs> Novia Maldonado rolls up her sleeve for her first shot. She'd heard some unsettling things before, she says, with Soto translating. She's saying that when people get vaccinated, they, you will die right away. But a talk from the parish priest persuaded her. The priest was saying that we don't need to be afraid. We need to get vaccinated, that this is okay. A recent study underscores the importance of community engagement, trust building, and proactive communication as key to easing vaccine hesitancy. That echoes the efforts of Soto, who constantly distributes texts and flyers for events at late-night concerts, community centers, and churches. It's the priests, the leaders of our church, leaders like myself, and a place where it's their neighborhood, we're coming to them. So they don't have to drive, they don't have to spend money on gas, you know. Soto says the pandemic has hit her community hard, and that likely won't change until more members get vaccinated. That, she says, will take a concerted, long-term push. We are about equity, and this is what equity looks like. Julissa Soto is looking to redouble her efforts. She worries about the super-transmissible variant, with hundreds of thousands of Spanish-speaking Coloradans still not vaccinated with a first dose, let alone a booster. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Two Coloradans were working on a book about the state's boom and bust cycles when the pandemic hit. And while historian Tom Noel and attorney Bill Hansen didn't catch the virus, let's just say the virus caught up with them, it threw off the whole premise of their just-finished book about Colorado's economic ups and downs. Tom, Bill, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan, for having us. Thank you, Ryan. Good to meet you. So COVID meant a major rewrite. Uh, Instead of ending boom and bust Colorado with a chapter about modern boom times, you had to pivot to an ending centered around the pandemic bust. Were you two in a sort of panic when this book was due to publish, Bill? Well, this was a little irritating because (laughs) we had the manuscript accepted by the publisher on March 1st of 2020. We'd been working on it for a couple of years And then within two weeks, the entire project became irrelevant. And uh, it took several months for us to discuss it with a publisher and say, we've really got to go back now and deal with the pandemic, swing into the 1918 pandemic, and then revisit all of the booming industries that we had previously talked about and try to figure out the impact on them. It was a major rewrite and covering the pandemic in real time was really quite challenging. Ah, I imagine. And uh, you made reference there to the flu pandemic of the early 1900s. So you draw a correlation there. Tom, you've written, oh my goodness, dozens of books. Uh, Was this a a first time experience for you? Yeah, yeah. I don't think we've ever written from the bottom of a bus before. A bottom of a bus. Well, in the book, you call the COVID-19 pandemic Colorado's sharpest and swiftest economic crash in nearly a century. Is it reminiscent of previous busts, though? Yes, and certainly the reaction uh, is similar, where uh, businesses uh, want to stay open, where health officials and economists say, beware, uh, we better deal with this, we 
better mask everyone up. So we had the same struggle then that we had now in 1918 as we have now about the mask or not the mask. What you still had was public health officials taking on politicians during election year, as well as businesses who are crashing and uh, the public asserting personal liberty interests in lieu of the uh, common good. And that's a very much common theme. And I'm not sure we really learned much from history from uh, that experience, but it was identical then. And uh, actually the 1918 flu pandemic was probably worse in Colorado than the 2020 pandemic in terms of uh, we were a little more still in the Wild West era of uh, personal liberties and a little more resistant to uh, listening to public health officials. Our medical know-how, no doubt, was less as well. Tom, the, I think the exact count actually is this is the 56th book you've published about Colorado history. And of course, it takes the booms and busts beyond the pandemics. So I wonder if you unearthed any new nuggets about olden times, maybe a great anecdote about previous booms and busts. I think we uncovered a few of the people that would dealt with people like Aunt Clara Brown, the, the black ex-slave here who came out, did very well, made money in Central City, helped build a church there. Her story had not been told that well, we didn't think before. Yeah, Aunt Clara Brown. Later living the hardest possible way, washing those long johns with miners. If you can imagine all the filth and dirt and bodily fluids and whatnot she was dealing with. Tell us more about her. She was born a slave in Tennessee. I went to an owner named Brown who was very impressed with her religiosity and her teaching herself to read through the Bible. He freed her. She went to St. Louis and there joined up with a bunch of guys headed west in 1859 for the Colorado Gold Rush. And what did she do once she got to Colorado? She opened up a laundry business, much needed, up in Central City. Oh, even before that, Ryan, I forgot, she started the first Sunday school here in Denver with one John M. Shivington, a Methodist minister. So hmm. you have an interesting uh, clash of people there that we discovered. That's Colonel Shivington from the Sand Creek Massacre. Exactly. My goodness. It was the first black woman admitted into the Pioneer Society. And also, uh, somewhat belatedly, she's been put in stained glass in the state capitol, and we've got a new monument up for her in Riverside Cemetery. Uh, In Denver. There is quite a bit of Colorado health history in this book, Beyond Pandemics, Bill, uh, when tuberculosis was raging. How did Colorado become, quote, the most remarkable sanitarium in the world in the late 1800s? Well, partly by promotion by the railroads and others. Uh, But the fact is, a lot of people thought that the uh, dry, high, sunny climate in Colorado was naturally good for people's health. And there was a group of physicians that uh, evolved during the 1880s to promote that as a sure cure uh, for tuberculosis, then called consumption. And it brought a tidal wave of people to Colorado, both as tourists and permanent residents. And many believe that tuberculosis brought more people to Colorado as tourists or permanent residents than either mining or agriculture ranching during that period. And so it was a 
major population boost to Colorado, and again promoted to the by the railroads and Colorado boosters. It was actually probably a health hoax. It really didn't cure anybody, but a lot of people thought it would, and um, that was the foundation of such a institutions as National Jewish Hospital, which opened in 1899 and has become one of the premier lung institutes in the world. And one of the things we have found, uh, Ryan, is that tuberculosis is not something the Chamber of Commerce wanted to talk about or the boosters. So it's pretty well suppressed. You don't even have hard figures for documenting what Bill suggested, which many of us believe that many more people came here for health than for wealth. But it is fascinating to me that there might have been a tourist message around tuberculosis. Like, come here if you're sick. Do I have that right, Bill? Yeah, that's what people were saying. But it was it was being promoted, again, by the railroads. They want people to come out here. And then there were the tourists, like Lady Bird, who touted the beauty of Colorado, but also its healthful effects. And you start seeing this in the... 1860s, and the Chamber of Commerce actually did buy into it until uh, Dr. Koch decided it was a contagious disease, and uh, suddenly by 1900, people weren't so eager to uh, lure the consumptives into Colorado. (laughs) Oh, that's fascinating. You mentioned Lady Bird. I gather that's Isabella Bird, who wrote A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains. Exactly. Yeah, which was her account of living near Rocky Mountain National Park and her relationship with a man that she met there. Um, Here's what's fascinating. The TB sanitarium movement made the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic even worse in Colorado. Was that because there were so many sick people here who were more susceptible to the virus, Tom? Yeah, I think so, that the population generally, compared with other states, would have many more people with lung problems, which is what brought them here in the first place. Gosh. You find an element of racism in the way the 1918 pandemic was handled. Well, I think what happened in 1918 is everybody was looking for a scapegoat. The immigrants were naturally a uh, somewhat reviled group of people, Eastern Europeans, Italians, Irish and therefore they were often accused of contributing to the health crisis in Denver in 1918. They were ostracized because when a member of the family became sick, they naturally uh, congregated in the family uh, home and attended to the ill while, as opposed to going to doctors. Hmm. And the same thing with the Ute Indians. Uh, They were ostracized as well because they supposedly didn't listen to the public health authorities at the time. But it was primarily an anti-immigrant thing. Somebody needed to be blamed, and who else better than the immigrants at that time? There was very heavy uh, Jewish immigration at that point, many poor Jews from Eastern Europe who show up here. And that was one reason for, of course, National Jewish Hospital and the JCRS, the Jewish Consumptive Relief Society, being created. Although, to their credit, the Jews welcomed non-Jews to those institutions. Ah. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are talking about Colorado's booms and busts. The authors of a new book join us called Boom and Bust Colorado, historian Tom Noel and attorney Bill Hansen. They had to rewrite this book because of the bust brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay, let's jump forward a century, ending the book with 
assessments of what you call the vice segments of Colorado's economy, by which you mean gambling, beer, and marijuana. How have those industries fared in the pandemic? Well, amazingly well, um, not surprisingly. I, I always thought it was interesting that critical industries early on during the pandemic included the uh, pot dispensaries, the gun retailers, and the uh, booze stores, as opposed to the uh, religious institutions, which were not deemed critical. And so as it turned out, um, pot and gambling just soared during this period of time with the online gambling somehow saved the casinos. And uh, beer fared pretty well, too. So yeah, the vice industries seem to have come out of the pandemic pretty well, especially pot. I guess everybody wanted to be high. I mean, I, I recall the scenes in Denver when the mayor, for a moment, tried to close down liquor stores and dispensaries early on, uh, and how, how well that did not go. Yeah, that only lasted about a day, didn't it? <laughs> I, I, I think it might have been less than that. Uh, in fact. So, Tom, it it makes sense to me that vices, which are a a form of escape, right, do well when times are tough, a kind of counter-cyclical relationship. Is that true in history as well? Yeah, I think so. And when the publisher first approached me about this, they wanted to update the standard boom and bust approach with mining rushes and whatnot, and to add beer, uh, which, of course, we were number one for a while in brew pubs and uh, microbreweries, and also to add the uh, marijuana angle, which where we were the first state to legalize recreational marijuana. By popular vote. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. It was a pleasure, Ryan. Thank you. Historian Tom Noel and attorney Bill Hansen, co-authors of Boom and Bust Colorado. This is CPR News. Strictly speaking, in Colorado, a buffalo is a collegiate athlete from Boulder, whereas a bison is the great hulking, humped, and hoofed animal that once covered the Great Plains. Tens of millions of them. A distant relative of the true buffaloes of Asia and Africa, the American bison has always played a role in our nation's story. Native people knew every part of the bison had value. Many settlers moving westward thought otherwise. And by 1900, the continent's largest mammal was at the edge of extinction. But conservation efforts soon kicked in. In 1914, the city of Denver established a herd of bison with two from the zoo and a few more from Yellowstone. Today, you can see their descendants alongside I-70 in Genesee Park. And in the San Luis Valley, a herd of 2,000 roaming a 50,000-acre pasture. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio. Tattoo artist and father Danny Schofield is one of the five people killed in the rampage during the final week of 2021. The 38-year-old was shot at the Lucky 13 tattoo shop in Lakewood. Those closest to Schofield called him Dano, including loyal customers like Richard Kimball. He shared his memories with me a few days after the attack. You can go ahead and start recording. The only thing I'll say is hopefully hopefully I can hold it together. Oh, I don't think that you have to. That's certainly not my expectation. I met him years ago as my wife's tattoo artist, and then I started getting work from him also. And I was just always kind of struck with how beautiful an individual he is and uh, or was. When it comes to getting tattoos and stuff like that, it's a really serious bond you have with that person because, I mean, 
tattoos are kind of forever. They do last a while. So there's like trust and stuff involved. And with Dano, I always felt the trust straight off the bat. I didn't need to worry about it. I wasn't concerned about what work he might want to do for me or on me or, or his work. And, and he was just a beautiful individual. How many tattoos do you have from Dano? Oh, God. Um, let me think for just a moment here. One, two, three, four, five, uh, like nine or ten. Nine or ten. And you said that he started by being your wife's tattoo artist. How many tattoos yeah. does she have from Dano? Oh, she has many. I wouldn't even really be able to venture a guess. She actually has an entire sleeve of work that he did. It's a whole bunch of Simpsons characters and screenshots from Simpsons. And then um, she's got a handful of works that are basically, they're just arts that he had drawn and, you know, put up on Facebook or something like that and be like, hey, I want a tattoo of this. Does anybody want it? And generally, you know, my wife would run it up and be like, yeah, I'll take that. But she's had a lot of work done from him. In other words, it wasn't just her saying, do this tattoo. He would say, I have worked up some art. Who'd like it on their body? And she'd say me. Yeah, precisely. Actually, she has kind of like a wolfman tattoo that looks kind of like me that Dano drew up and she wanted it. And then he drew up a matching kind of like a second part for that tattoo. For me, I have a little Catwoman tattoo. Almost like those necklace hearts where one person has half and the other person has half the tattoo version of that. Yeah, precisely. Uh, my wife and a friend of hers actually have a tattoo like that from Dano as well. That's one person speaking into one end of one of those old can on a string phone things. Tell me about another tattoo he did for you. Um, we'll, we'll go with the last tattoo he did for me. It was in October and he would always do a, an October spooky season special for like horror themed tattoos and stuff like that. And this year, um, actually my wife and I both, we went in for a tattoo date. He did a, a Beetlejuice portrait for me on my, let's see, that is on my left calf. And the tattoo my wife got is, uh, Edward Scissorhands, the scene where he's holding the pee in front of his face, trying to eat with his scissor hands. I'd like you to talk more about the relationship that develops between a tattoo artist and the person being tattooed. You simply have a lot of time together, right? Is that a time that you use to talk? Always, always. For me, tattoos can be very, very personal in my, in my own healing process. And all of it's involved in it. The actual, like, the pain of the tattoo, the sitting, the smell of the cleaning solutions, all of that is involved. Yeah, they're an artist and all of that, but they're also, you know, you're confident, somebody that you can tell anything to because you kind of have to through the course of how long you sit there. And I mean, Dano was a machine. The man was a printer. It was unbelievable how fast he could work, but it still takes time. So you develop that relationship. And if you're anything like I am, if the like, it doesn't really matter how good the artist is. If the relationship with him's no good, then I don't really care. Mm. I've had three artists total in my life, one of which, unfortunately, I lost to heroin, but you know, that makes two now that I've lost. So like, I'm I, like, I don't know if this is necessarily hitting me a little extra hard because of that, but it, it's hitting hard, like losing a friend, losing an artist, losing a confidant. It, it's just painful. And he was a dad. Yeah. Two daughters and a son. You tweeted that normally to deal with grief like this, you might get a tattoo. Yeah, that is a practice that started with my second ever tattoo after I got divorced from my first wife. But for me, it's 
it's involved in moving on. It's a way for me to get neg to get, well, I'm not necessarily just negative energy, right. But like the negative and the positive of the grief cycle, the, the pain and the sitting and, and all of that involved in a tattoo helps me with that. It gives me time to reflect on it, to think about it some more, and also just to deflect into the pain and let it burn out that way. So normally if something troublesome happened, Dano is who you might seek out. Yeah, he would get the phone call. Uh, he would, you know, the Facebook message or however I would reach out to him at the time. He'd be the one to get the phone call, be like, and it's not even necessarily like with bad trauma. It's just, that is definitely with trauma is one of my coping mechanisms. But I mean, I had a good day, you know, like I had fun with something. Let's get a tattoo, you know, like that's just kind of codifying the memory into, into forever. Give me an example of something that stood out in your conversations with him over the years. Um, just kind of how like open and loving and accepting he always was about kind of all of it. And he was always down for just kind of whatever art you would want or just to talk about art. I remember him talking about changes in his personal life for the better, making steps in his own individuality and things like that. And it was just always great to hear it and support it and just be there for him and with him. To witness that growth in him. Exactly. Like that to me, like my wife and I were talking about this just last night. To us, that's going to be one of the biggest sadnesses of it is the fact that, he, you know, he was always moving and shaking and making positive changes in his life. And for him to be struck down like this by just someone who's clearly a miserable individual is just incredibly sad. And it hurts a lot, but that's okay because pain is part of life that we, we deal with that as it comes. But I, I guess, like you said, I'm, I'm going to have to figure out something else. I'm going to have to find another artist to, to hurt me a little bit, but that's okay. How did you learn of his death? Um, obviously saw the, the Denver Post article about the actual event before I went to bed. Woke up the next morning, um, I was getting my day started, and um, I hear my wife exclaim from the other room, we actually heard from a mutual friend's Facebook status about um, his death. Thank you for sharing those memories with us. Yeah, thank you for reaching out to me, Ryan. Richard Kimball, remembering tattoo artist Dano Schofield, who was murdered December 27th at Lucky 13 Tattoo in Lakewood, part of a shooting spree. Police haven't released many details about the assailant who was killed, like the gun he used or a motive. He was on law enforcement's radar. The Denver Post reporting someone called a helpline a year ago, concerned he might commit a terrorist attack. All right, that's Colorado Matters, with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. Special thanks to Eli Imadali and Nancy Lawholm. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.